listening to a Flower Pop production. Hello, lovely people. I hope you're good and I hope your weeks have gone well. Now, what a conversation I have for you. Today, I'm going to introduce you to the brilliant and inspiring Martin Bisp. And don't be afraid to fail. Just never be afraid to fail. You know, I would have rather failed being brave than stuck in the job and, and let the, the, the charity limp on. Martin was working in finance when he and a friend saw two young men in their local park dealing drugs. They knew they had to do something and couldn't let life in their community carry on as it was. So they started Empire Fighting Chance. It's a charity which helps young people with all sorts of issues through therapy and non-contact boxing. Their work has helped transform the lives of thousands and thousands of young people. They work with schools, the police, they've helped so many with their mental health. They lobby parliament and they've even attracted the attention of the royal family. But this isn't just a story about boxing. It's about family, family coming together, community, friendship, believing in what you're doing and never giving up. Martin says he and his friend are just two mates running a boxing club. But after you hear this, I think you'll agree there isn't anything ordinary about their story. It's extraordinary and it's helping to fill all of us with hope. Hello and welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to author, I speak with incredible people who've already started their next chapter in the hope it might help you with your next chapter. Or at the very least, you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here he is, Martin Bisp. Martin Bisp, welcome to The Next Chapter with Ellie Barker. I am so delighted to have you with me. So thank you so much for sparing the time. Oh, no worries. It's my pleasure. Right. Well, we've got a lot to talk about here, Martin, so I'm just going to crack on. So we start as ever with the prologue. So you grew up in the area of Kingswood in Bristol and you said you had a fairly normal childhood. Your dad wasn't around a load, but you just you had a very fairly normal childhood. Yeah, really. I mean, you know, it was without giving my age away too much. It was the 70s and early 80s, you know, so... um it was pretty straightforward. I had two parents that cared about me. My dad was away a lot. Um, sport was my thing. It sort of kept me, you know, it was the one thing I kept gravitating to. There was almost no sport that I hadn't tried or played. Um, but we didn't have a lot of money, but who did really? You know, I, ne- I never was never aware that I was poor. I'm never aware that we missed out. I felt that I had a good childhood in, in almost every respect, really. Do you have siblings? Do you have brothers and sisters? I have a brother, yeah, a younger brother. Okay, so you just and you went to school, and you said you said you were a, a reluctant pupil at school, and but English was your favourite subject. Yeah, I, I think maybe it's my lack of emotional maturity because you sometimes you sit there and you kind of ask yourself, why am I doing this? You know, even when I did my A levels, and you know, you, you, you sort of school friends or your colleagues or whatever were enthusing about Shakespeare or you know, um, the latest play. And I just wanted to get to the pub or go out or do something. I was never, I struggled with that whole concept, I suppose. I still do in some ways. Abstract theory um, is something that I find difficult. And even if you do a course now or you you sit through a meeting, I think it's all very well, but what are we actually going to do? Is there a point to this? Or, Or are we almost just showing off how clever we are? And I guess in some ways that was half my approach to school. And it didn't help that I was... Um, I was very lazy. So, 
you know, I was lucky. I was uh, O levels. I did, so I didn't really have to. You know, when you have to do a load of um, coursework, it's a lot tougher to to maybe get away with it. But I'm reaping what I sow. So my youngest daughter is just like me, and I think for her GCSE, she probably did. Oh, I don't know, maybe three three months work out of five years schooling. I managed to pass, thankfully, but um, well done, yeah, yeah, she drove me mad and I got a little bit of a taste of my own medicine, I think. <laughs> but, but I mean, obviously we're going to go on to talk about it, but it goes to show, doesn't it, that this is, we say this so often, especially on this podcast, at school and, you know, I've got children at school, obviously, you know, you're dealing with children all the time, but the schools, sometimes it's great and it suits the children really well, but it, it's, it's like a one size fits all and it just doesn't fit all, does it? So like you say that if you, but you can easily come away from school thinking, do you know what, I'm completely rubbish at everything, but you're not. Yeah, I think so. In, and I, again, it's, it, it, it was one of those things where... It was okay. I never really felt that it was was me. Um, I felt subjects, you know, that there's a practical element. I mean, I don't mean practical as in, you know, bricklaying or, or, or plumbing, but actually there comes a point where you're reading a Shakespeare play or you're reading something by Arnold Wesker, whatever it may be. And, you know, I loved English and I did A-level English and stuff. But how much does that relate to the life I'm about to live? How much does that relate to the things I'm going to do? How much does that relate to what's going on around me and I guess that relatability and that practical use of what I'm learning is something that that I struggle a little bit with when when we're having those conversations or when I was in school you know I was sports mad as well to be fair so um again anything sporty related I was much more um turned on to in, and more inclined to take part in with with full enthusiasm Mm-mm. so so you so you obviously you did your a levels then and you said so going into your first chapter which you worked in finance you were in sorry in finance you worked for an investment bank or was it investment company as such yes well, well i worked in finance so i left school well i guess it would have been 18 a levels 18 and i went straight to work um I'm a work, you know, I came from a working class family. I don't think anybody in my family, until my eldest daughter, who's now 23, had ever went gone to university. You know, it was never on my radar. Going to university was never something that I thought I was going to do. Um, it was very much right, get a job and and crack on. Um, and honestly, I got into finance because I was a good cricketer. Cricket. So how did this happen? Well, doing my A levels, and I was like I said, I was a reasonable fast bowler. And a chap playing for the team worked for a finance company, one of the big insurance companies it was at the time, actually. And when, um, you know, my, my department cricket team, the worst cricket team, could, could do with a, a fast bowler. Um, <laughs> when did you finish your A-levels? And I was like, oh, I finish them in whatever, May or something. He said, oh, do you want to come and work for us? Um, so I went for the interview, got the job. And I think the second day they were like, can you bring your whites in? We've got a game tonight. So, <laughs> you know, cricket was how I got into finance. And then it was just... <laughs> One of those things I hopped about a little bit, some different companies, because you're always looking to progress. Um, and I started to do system work. You know, I work, um, worked for a company that developed design computer systems. And from there, I became a, an analyst and a business analyst and moved into sort of the, the you know, investment companies and finance companies and performed business analysis. And I did that for 25 years, really, until I gave up to, to run the charity. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. And so were the, was this always based in Bristol? Yes, yeah. So you've always been in Bristol. And did you, I mean, did you enjoy the work? Um, at times, I think at times it was, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I worked, a lot of the time I worked with nice people. 
and I think if you work with nice people, it's a lesson that, that I've tried to bring into the charity. When you work with people you like and you trust, then those eight, 10, 12 hours, whatever they are, they become much more enjoyable. The problem is sometimes, and certainly the last sort of employment, you know, we were doing, uh, my colleague actually, Dave and I, we were, we were working with two or three extra uh, additional companies that had been bought by the group. But you knew almost immediately that you were going to have to make half of those people weren't going to be in work once you'd finished your or weren't going to be in the in the role once you'd finished your review and you'd done, done your analysis and mm. i think for me that was one moment where i was dealing with people that i liked that were kind that worked in areas that maybe there wasn't huge employment and you couldn't see any way that you could go through the process and still have them in in work and i think that sort of stuff can be quite soul destroying because even though you're doing the right thing and you're doing it for the business which i know is my role to protect it it, it isn't fabulous when you look at people that probably deserve more than they're going to get and realize that they're, they're not going to be there so i think from my point of view those elements were tough um but it was offset i did work with good people and people whose company i enjoyed in who i still keep in touch with now so that that was the good side mm, and obviously you learned so much so i mean interesting because obviously you say you enjoyed english at school but when you say you worked in finance i mean did you develop a love for numbers or such or was what you were doing sort of away from the numbers and more about the management of people um i think it was no numbers were important i, I, mean, I am numerate um but a lot of the stuff with the analysis is is problem solving i suppose and one thing I've realised, and one thing I realised quite early on, is that I am a good problem solver. You know, in the way that we do things for the charity, we do stuff innovatively, and, and I like solving a problem. Truthfully, once I've solved it, sometimes the implementation of that solving isn't something I enjoy overly, so I might sort of give that to somebody else. But when it comes to solving problems in and looking at situations and working things through and, you know, using the analysis techniques and getting to an answer. I do enjoy that. That is something I, I still enjoy that now. I enjoy sort of solving problems in, and looking at things in, and working out the best way of doing it. Mm, probably that takes you back to, you know, at school then, like you say, when you're learning about Shakespeare and as interesting as it is, but you like to get like a little bit more into the nitty gritty, maybe not all the way then if you don't like to implement <laughs> it, <laughs> but you like to get there. So that is good. So, well, okay then. So speaking of problems, so at this stage, so obviously you're playing cricket. Were you boxing at this? Because oh, you, you obviously did love boxing. When did you start boxing? Um, boxing was one of those things that I started when I was younger, when, to be honest, when... <sighs> When you're, uh, I don't know what I was, let's say 12, 13, and, and your dad's not always around, you, you sort of look for things. Um, and I just used to go to the boxing club. I started off, I think I, I was doing some judo and the boxing club was housed there. And I looked, and of course, in those days as well, boxing was on ITV. It was on, you know, the big fights were shown free. They were shown on national television. There was, it was sports night on a sort of, whatever, it was a Wednesday night, they'd show a big fight. So, Boxing was very much part of the national psyche as well. Um, it certainly wasn't the minority sport it is now. And I kind of, you know, I looked through the window and I was sort of transfixed by by the training and, and kind of, you know, somebody sort of said that the, the, the coach had kind of aware of I was in, and maybe some of the things that were happening elsewhere and kind of said, look, I'm in the gym. Um, and that was it, really. I sort of half fell in love with it, if I'm truthful. But arguably, I'm still in love with the sport in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Um, and you drift in and out. But boxing was there for a while. And the problem is you get to 17, 18. And do you want to sacrifice your entire life for a sport that you're not going to make any money in? The answer is no. So you want to go out. You want to go drinking. You want to do whatever you want to do. And 
Um, boxing takes so much from you. It demands so much discipline. It demands so much sacrifice. That it's a hard thing to do when you get older. Mm. Um, and I think those, those those professional fighters, the you know we've had them in the gym, the champions. I just think I look at them and they they don't get anywhere near the credit or the recognition that they deserve. Not just for what they've achieved, but how they've achieved it, what they've given up. You know, you hear stories of a footballer. They might train in the morning, be in the pub all afternoon. You know, you couldn't do that as a as a championship fighter and then go and win anything. You just couldn't do it. Mm. You know, you're almost monastic those last few months, and you can't eat this, and you can't eat that, and you can't drink, and you can't go out. You train three times a day, so the sacrifices are huge. Mm. And I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but the pain. I mean, that you know, you're you're being beaten up. Or you know, I appreciate that it, on the outside looking, it might not be as simple as that. But to go in and just be, you know, to have these injuries, it must be horrendous. I think amateur boxing less so. I mean, it isn't always pleasant and you can have headaches and, you know, nosebleeds out of nowhere. But I think those professionals, when they box 12 rounds, you know, they, they are sore for, for, for days, weeks afterwards. I think they're sort of, um, sometimes they're doing it for so little money. Mm. You know, they're doing it to try and, for love of the sport, but they're also trying to do it to, to better their lives, to, to improve the lives of their children, to put their family in a better position than they were in. Um, and if you talk to a lot of the, the boxers that came through, say, our gym, you know, maybe a Lee Selby or a Lee Haskins, one of the big driving forces for them were their families, mm. wanting to put those families in a, in a better place. And they were prepared to make huge sacrifices to try and, and give their children a better life than they had or a more comfortable life than they had, maybe is, mm. is fairer. Because when you talk about the gym, are you talking about the Empire Gym? Yes, yeah. Yes, yeah, so for people who listen to this who don't live in Bristol or who live in Bristol who may not know about it, so can you explain, because the Empire Gym is a huge institution in Bristol, can you explain what the Empire Gym is? Yeah, so the Empire Gym, um, in the broadest terms, I suppose, was probably the, one of the first places, if not the first place in the city where um, black and white used to mix and train. So Bristol has or was certainly racially fractured for a long time. And the Empire, which was based in a place called St Paul's in Bristol, was always very much an open door policy. So um, a good example really is we've got a guy who's the caretaker for the gym now called Jimmy Robottom. And Jimmy started with the gym, we think, <laughs> Jim thinks early 1970s, maybe 70, 71. And he's still involved now coaching the amateurs. So what's that, 52 years or whatever, and he's still involved with, with the club. Um, it's it's a place where there was used to be weightlifting at the front and then the sort of converted chapel there used to be the the boxing club um and it was one of those places where everybody mixed wherever you came from um whatever race religion you just got on you went in the gym you trained together you became friends you looked after each other and i think that institution like you said if i wore a, an empire hoodie somewhere now supermarket or wherever i go somebody does stop me and want to talk about the empire Mm. wherever I go in Bristol somebody stops me I had one on the other week and I nipped into the supermarket um, and the security guard stopped me to tell me that he used to train at the Empire all those years ago and his dad used to do the weightlifting at the other side and you know we had a whole conversation for 20 minutes and he hadn't been in the gym for 25 years but he still held this great affection for for the Empire gym it's such a big part of his life and there's thousands of people across the city that, that have got similar stories mm -hmm. it really is it's such an institution and like you say some some big names and and also we're talking about some some tough parts of Bristol really aren't we so it it sort of brings it's brought people together from like you say different different races but all different parts of Bristol as well 
Yeah, I, I mean, what's the expression? It's a broad church. From my point of view, we we very we are very wedded in the boxing to um, to the community of Simples and Eastern that have always supported us. You know, I mean, you don't you're not in a community for fifty plus years if the community doesn't value what you do and want to be part of what you do. But we have boxers and weightlifters. They travel from all over the city. You know, they might come from from South Bristol, and it takes them an hour to get in, an hour and a half on in rush hour in Bristol traffic, or they may live two streets away. Um, but again, there, there's a few things. You know, there, there's a reputation. I believe we're a massively friendly gym. We look after everybody. Um, we have always been there. We welcome everybody. Um, and once you walk through those doors, you're accepted. You know where you've come from, where you've been. It doesn't really matter. You're accepted as being part of the empire. And we do what we can to help each other. And I think that's always been the way. I mean, I've been running the boxing club for 20 plus years. And in my 20 plus years, that hasn't changed, I don't believe. I believe it's still a place that cares. And it's a place where people feel safe and it's a place that welcome everybody. Mm. Oh, it really is. It really is. Well, so going there, so we're going to go in now to your next chapter. So basically, so you're working in finance. You, at this stage, you'd gone into coaching boxing, hadn't you? Because if I'm, yeah. if I'm right, you had a car crash and you had an injury to your neck. So you couldn't actually, you weren't sort of fighting so much yourself, but you'd gone into the coaching side of it. Yeah, I mean, if I'm honest, I was, whatever I was, 20-something, 29, I had my daughter, and you know what it's like, you think, I'm going to have to get myself in some kind of shape, and you, you do try and use a, a commercial driven, and they felt a little bit soulless to me, and I thought, well, maybe I should go, and I thought, well, the Empire's close, I'll go and train at the Empire again, and um, I started just to try and get myself fit, funny enough, I was working with Jimmy Robottom, who was doing some coaching with me at the time, and um, when I had the car crash, it's still now my short um, my hand can go numb if I sit in the wrong place and I get pressure on my neck so um and it was Chris Sanagar that said oh why don't you just help us out we need a little bit more coaching and I, I truthfully I wasn't so sure you know it was hard work and I had a young family I'd do a bit and I wouldn't do a bit and then I had a kid called Danny Roberts who came through he was 18 years old Dan um was sort of man strong at 18 young miss mixed race kid from from Hartcliffe um and he was special there was just something about him that, you know, he, he he was a rough handful at the time, but he was polite. He worked really hard. He wanted to be different. He wanted to make something of himself. He wanted to achieve. And he kind of, from that point, we we worked together. Um, he made a couple of national finals. I'm pleased to say he's now in the UFC and spent six months of the year in Florida with the Black Zillion. So his life is, is improved immeasurably. Wow. And Dan kind of got me hooked and that was it. And I was just coaching. Um and then the charity started out of, it was just a fluke, really. I um, I did the Friday session because nobody wants to coach on a Friday. It's where everybody just wants to go home. So I used to stop on the way home from work and hang about in the gym for an hour before the session started. And we were sat in the office and, and Jamie and I saw a, a, well, two young men that we vaguely knew, Jamie Sanagaro, my co-founder. And they were up to no good. They were dealing drugs, really. And from... We're not sure at the time, although hindsight, we realised that we were sick to death of picking needles up in the park. We were sick to death of prostitutes accosting people using the gym. We were sick to death of what was going on. We kind of went over and said, look, this has to stop. We had a whole conversation about how it was no good. And we sort of persuaded them to come back in the gym, really. Um, we did a, did a little session and said, the gym's yours if you want to use it. Um, come back anytime. And on the Monday, a couple came back. On the Tuesday, a couple more. Wednesday a couple more and within sort of six weeks we had 50 young people coming five days a week 
And so Jamie and I were a bit like, oh, what have we done? And we were doing two days each of flipping a coin for the third day because none of us wanted to do three days. <laughs> um, it was all free, you know, we weren't charging the kids, but we kind of felt that we were a little community club and we had to give something back to those in the community. Um, and that went on for months. And then a school rang up and said, you've been working with Jamal, his behaviour's approved, but could we consider working with Denzel? We were like, okay, but we had the sense to charge the schools. So the thing is, um, professional boxing, bar that, I don't know, 1%, half a percent, there's no money in it whatsoever. So most professional boxers, they might box four times a year and get paid 700 pounds a fight. Well, you know, you can't survive off of that. So we had two young men who wanted to become professional boxers. And we sort of said, well, come and work for us. We'll pay you for these sessions. You can do personal training in between and you can... Um, you know, you can train as a boxer, so you can become full-time involved in the sport, but you have to deliver these sessions. In, and um, they were like, yeah, it sounds fabulous. And so from our point of view, I suppose, that's how we then started working in more schools and another school would bring up and another school would bring up. And according to England, well, not just England boxing, actually, we've heard it a couple of times today from other people, they believe we've got the countries and maybe the largest boxing programme anywhere in, with schools. Mm -hmm. So we might work with, 100 plus schools well more than 100 schools actually looking at it over maybe 120 schools a year um but we started with that one school that had one pupil that had said that we've made a difference to his life and that was it you know i didn't have any interest in doing anything else we just wanted to give something back run a program that helped the community we'd run out of money we put hands in our pockets to keep the coaches going because that was the way it was um no ambition no plan just wanted to help um and then i think it we, we say it was always within two weeks but we're never sure we reckon six to nine months after that first encounter we had two things that totally changed i suppose both the way we viewed it and actually ultimately our lives um one young man was referred to us and the school was to throw him out and we really could not understand it he was polite he would um, tidy up after the circuits he would want to hang around the gym and in the end, we kind of went, look, what's going on? This, this just this isn't good. And he confessed he just didn't understand math. So rather than hold his hand up and say, I don't get it, he'd turn the table over, he'd swear, he'd, you know, he'd play up, he'd be thrown out of class. So we decided that we wanted to try and keep him in school. And we started to do some really basic numeracy things, like if you box three rounds and each round was two minutes, how many minutes would you have boxed type of thing? So we got him to build his confidence in maths without being explicit, what's three times two or whatever. Um, and the other one, which in some ways I think has been the driving force as well, is that we had somebody who came to us that had obvious mental health problems. And I shouldn't say this, but it's 2006. The school were a bit like, look, really, we just want him off site. So from our point of view, we breathtaking naivety, I rang CAMS, the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service. And I went, look, you know, he's not, he's not naughty. He's not well. Can I book him in? You know, can we help him? And there was a whole conversation about waiting lists and crisis points. And, you know, it turned out that they had to be basically, you know, the serious suicide attempts or a mental health crisis point before cameras would, would intervene. The threshold's so high. Um, and I think it, you know, it's definitely worth saying that this isn't CAMS's fault. It's a service that's so underfunded um, that actually they can only deal with those at the very sort of um, furthest crisis point, if you like, before they can start offering services. And, we decided then and there we wanted to um to do something and we thought well do you know what we'll try and design programs that help with mental health 
and we sat down, we went away and we went, okay, what, what do we do? What do we get? Funny enough, the day job came in handy. So we used the analysis to work out who was referred to us, why they were referred to us. Could we make a lasting change? What could we do? And we started to design programs that we helped, we hoped would help young people. We hoped would actually get them back into school and keep them in school, for example. So we didn't want this cycle where they left the gym in six weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks, confident, head held high and came back again in three months and left again and came back again. We thought we want to make a lasting change. So to do that, to tackle the core problem. And that was it. We started designing problems to tackle the programs to tackle the core problem. And that was, that was us. We didn't care about anything else. We were trying to design it. You know, we had no plans again. That went on until 2000, uh, 2012, mm. when Charlotte Leslie, who's still a trustee, invited me to a, um, something in London about boxing changing lives. And I met a guy who had an international charity, the Favelas of Rio. And he was like, well, you do what we do. We get two million pound a year. You get 20,000 pound a year. Do you want to come to Rio? And I was like, yeah, of course I do. And I remember I went home to my wife and said, oh, I've been invited to Rio. And she was almost patting me on the head. Yeah, of course you have. That, that sounds lovely. And it kept, they kept ringing up and I kept, okay, okay. And then I think it was the last week in November, but it may be slightly, they rang me and said, right, this date in December, when the 10th of December, you've got to fly to, to Rio. And because of my job, I, I couldn't go. And Jamie, and this probably sums our partnership up, Jamie sat and I went, oh, okay, I'll go. And I was sat overlooking the real estuary. Uh, it was tipping down. It was dark. It was horrible. And he was WhatsApping me pictures of the Copacabana Beach with the white sands in the blue sky. But he came back afterwards and went, listen, we've got to be a charity. I think we can do this. And I still was reluctant because, you know, it was a lot of hard work. There's not much money in charitable work. And I was like, really, really, really? And he kept saying, no, we've got to do it. We've got to do it. And that was it. We decided to to launch a charity and I suppose really we haven't ever looked back. Mm. Well, look, Martin, I mean, all of what you just said there, I mean, it's it's gobsmacking. It's just amazing, all of it. So just to just to go back, go back before, because I know your story, but just in case someone's listening, just to get some things clear here. Because so when you say Jamie Saniger, he's, am I right in saying he's Chris Saniger's son? It's, oh, yeah. yeah. So his dad is a boxer. Um, and he's sort of very, very much involved in the boxing world. So you, there you two were just, you know, you didn't even want to particularly do that Friday night coaching, but you're just sitting there, have no plans at all for this. But this is, you You love, you know, where you live, you're at Bristol, you, you've got your roots of your boxing, and you see this with these two um, chaps, you know, dealing drugs, and you can see what's going on. And most people just would never, I might moan about it, think it's awful, go on to do the next thing. But you just, you two of you just did something about it. And I met, I think you told me at the time when we I interviewed before for my with my other job, that, you know, when you say you took them into the gym perhaps you were a little bit sort of heavy-handed I'm not maybe not heavy-handed but you know tough but this is the point is because you know you're you're not you're not scared you know we everyone around this situation gets very scared but you two weren't scared you could understand it and then the more you did it and through boxing you can understand like with the boy with the mass and all this frustration and all this 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 anger that we see and that make our streets sort of we're scared of you see it in a different way don't you because you can see the underlying problems underneath all of it yeah i mean one of the things that i keep saying is that we must bear in mind these are children so actually what we're dealing with is young people that have often got complex chaotic home lives they may not have um, a lot of security at home. You know, there may be mental health problems in the family. They, they, they may have parents in prison. There may be substance abuse. So a lot of the time, they're basically lost, scared children who need support and need help. And actually, rather than prejudge that 
And we often joke, the young people that we work with are those that everybody else crosses the road to avoid. But we see huge potential in them. We see that they need discipline, they need structure, but they also need consistency. They need care, they need love. Um, they need people there who can help them. And, and beyond that, actually, they also need services that are fit for purpose because they're not. And I think that lots of mental health stuff um, is, is sort of designed by white middle class people for white middle class people. And if you don't fall into that category, then it can be quite challenging. If you centralise the service and you're a kid that lives in, I don't care, South Bristol, you live in St Paul's and you've got to get to Clifton and you haven't got that support structure, that's tough. Mm. You know, and it's intimidating. You're going to talk to somebody you don't really know, somebody that you don't have anything in common with, somebody you don't see yourself in, in an environment that you're not comfortable in. That's a big ask. Mm. And what we thought is that we have a community organisation that's trusted you know, we're not that clever. We're not this, we're just people. We're just there. We're just working class people who want to try and help other things. So they could see a little bit, and boxing's cool. So they could sort of half see themselves in us. And I think that helped and we could see ourselves in them. Mm. So we were like, okay. And, and I think that, that that relationship angle is just so important mm. for us. You know, we, we just see them. And it doesn't work for everybody, but we've never had a young person yet in 16 years that we've refused to work with ever. Mm. Um, regardless of how they refer to us in life crimes on the rise or they may you know we've never ever refused to work with anybody because mm-hmm. when I came in there I mean what really and I spoke with some of your coaches so so you you have you have therapists don't you so you you yeah. can have there's all different you can come um and and anyone listen to this it you know it's it's anyone is welcome isn't it it's not you don't have to be in trouble to go down there you can be a boy you can be a girl all sorts of things but you do have um you have actual therapists who do who are who are boxing and the non-contact boxing for example i remember you know speaking with one girl she'd lost her brother um and rather she said you know i used to sit down with therapists that didn't really help me but then she did the boxing and now she is she's a therapist herself isn't she 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 helps others and then i mean the the other one that stuck out in in mind so much and i'm sure he won't mind mentioning lewis you know he was he he and his mum was there and you know he was in he was in big trouble at school wasn't he he was i think i don't know if he actually been expelled but he was in real he was going he was going down a path and he openly said he was going down a path met his mum his mum was just loveliest lady you know you could see that she i'm sure was at time in despair you know he had a very very loving mum and and then he came to to your gym everything changed and now he's trained to be a police officer like his sister and I remember speaking to his mum and saying you know why is it and it's not necessarily now just you can't say oh well it's that school over there or it's that area in Bristol it's not it's all across it's everywhere isn't it and to have somewhere like this that's looking at this in a completely different way I think is is exceptional which is obviously why so many people also think it's exceptional yeah the, the the problems you know in and you know mental health for example is prevalent you know you're not insulated from these issues if you're rich or poor um it's hard to get access to services i think the young the therapists we use again what we saw was that young people would come to us that wouldn't want to access therapy and there's a whole series of reasons embarrassment you know stigma unable to build a relationship there's a whole series of reasons and we thought well we'd seen art therapy we'd seen play therapy we thought why can't you do boxing therapy um it took us a while to find the right partner we we found somebody who helped us trial it um and we've now got a team of our own therapists that are delivering and the idea being is that they're young dynamic therapists that look the part they look like they should be in a gym when a young person comes in there's no stigma there's no embarrassment their physical activity breaks down barriers 
Um, the therapy team say that often they get engagement on week one, not week seven or eight, which it might be with traditional talking therapy, because they've got this common interest, this, this common activity. Um, so all we thought was, well, okay, if we could create something where young people actually wanted to be, and we could get it delivered by people that were relatable to the young people that were coming to the gym, then we could see no reason why it wouldn't work. Um, and we might have been wrong, but I'm pleased to say with the therapy side, it's it's been massively successful because they're comfortable. And you wouldn't come in a gym and go, and this is what we, um, we, want, we do a group for, of adults as well, actually, that have been with us for 10 years. And I asked one of them once, I said, well, why do you keep coming? So I was just interested. And he said, well, when I come to you, I'm not the mentalist in the corner of the room. We go somewhere else and like, oh, that's a mental health group. When I come into the gym, I'm in the gym. You all talk to me. You all go, oh, there's your coach. There's your session. Go and do it. And he said, the difference that makes to me is that I feel that I belong somewhere. And I guess that's what we do with the young people. We don't say, oh, here's your therapist. This is, you know, this is Steve. He's your therapist. He's going to, we say, okay, here's Steve. He's your coach. Steve meets the person at reception. They have a quick conversation. Then they go and do the activity. There is safe sport to, um, space that they want to talk about other stuff. They want to have stuff after the session where they want to sit in and have a private conversation. But a lot of those barriers are removed. And I think that when we talk about inaccessibility, we, we need to talk about how services need to be where young people are and they need to be where they feel comfortable. Otherwise, we're never going to make a change. And for us, it, it, it seemed fairly straightforward. So we just had a go and, and it worked, really. Mm. And you say that with young people. It's the same with adults, isn't it? You know, so many adults. I mean, I think young people sometimes are better off. They're a bit more equipped and aware, you know, with sort of my age, even though my age, therapy is still a bit of a taboo subject, I think. And so that comes from the parents. So it's, you know, it's on so many different levels. And and to point out as well, you know, I met Enya. She was um, a girl. She openly said she'd had um, an eating disorder. And she, mm. came, she came in. So it doesn't necessarily need to be that you want to be a boxer or anything like that it's just you know a different way of of looking at something you definitely need to be a boxer i think we've only ever had a couple under thousands that we work with that have come through the charitable program and gone on to box boxing is the hook it's the engagement it's the way of breaking down a barrier you know it's the physical activity that helps the young person start to engage um from our point of view we use boxing because we knew it we use boxing because we could do it on a one-to-one, -one, small group basis. It'd be hard to do it with football. You've got 22 people or even 10 in a five-a-side game. How you can engage and have that conversation. If you're, in, if you're boxing and you're holding the pads, then you, it's easy to engage somebody in conversation. Um, but from our point of view, we have a, a mix. It's about 60-40 male-female split. Um, we have a team of therapists and a team of what we call coaches, but they're basically mentors who are therapeutically trained. And deliver sessions um, with a psychologist that we've got retained, Sam. And the idea being is that if you come into the gym, we can work with you, we can support you, we can offer advice, we can sort of engage, we can give you a safe space where it might be all you want to do for the first few weeks is come to a safe space. You know, that may be it. Um, but it's just important for us that we provided something that would match what young people needed and in a place where they could go. And you see, I mean, Marty, I know it's this is a big question, but, you know, there's so much. I mean, there is just so much, uh, you know, among my friends everywhere, this, with the mental health affecting boys, girls, bullying, mm. eating disorders, anger, just so, so much everywhere. Why, why do you think, I mean, you've seen so much, why do you think it's so bad now? Um, 
I think there's a whole series. To be honest, I think there's a whole series of reasons. We we see different trends, but I guess there's a degree of openness now, actually, which wasn't there years ago. So people are more prepared to talk about mental health. Um, if I'm honest, I think austerity followed by a pandemic has exacerbated problems. It's definitely um, we've seen that that we've removed services that maybe used to support them. The safety nets are no longer there. Youth services have gone. So again, safe space where young people might want to engage have disappeared. So you've got that, you've got the financial pressures and um, there's a whole series of, of um, research to show that the sort of bottom 20% and whatever it is, four or five times more to have mental health problems financially, 20%, sorry, than the top 20% of people financially. So you've got issues like that. Social media can't help because you can't shut your front door and be away from it. You can, can be bullied constantly. Um, so there's a whole series of reasons. I mean, poverty, we see a lot of poverty as a factor. We do see a lot of poverty. We see um, young people that are struggling, maybe struggling with a sense of self-worth, struggling with a sense of identity. Um, young people that are being drawn into gangs, young people who have suffered trauma. All these things tend to feed in, but you know, services are hard to access the safety nets of um, statutory services, they've been cut. Uh, youth services, youth provision, that's been cut. So we've made people <laughs> poorer over eight, 10 years. Then we've had a pandemic, which has exacerbated the difference and made them unable to access stuff. When we had the, the, the first lockdown, we had families that had no food in the house at all. So we're talking 2020 and um, the Pasco group who's have supported us, um, they've run a series of Subway franchises, we're doing fresh food parcels for us every week. And that was sometimes the only food the family had to live off for the entire week. So, and it wasn't on one or two families, we delivered to a lot of families who didn't have anything at all. And so it's very hard to imagine, but you're talking about 2020, a family of four that just had no food mm. and they wouldn't have eaten had we not delivered it. Mm. And there's, where do you go? Where's the support? Where's the service? It's there's a whole series of factors that, that lead into, I think, what, what we're seeing as a crisis and underfunded services are another one. Mm, and, and yeah, absolutely. And on the other, I mean, on the other side, again, from the conversations we've had and with, with Lewis's mum, you know, it is in all in all different areas. So even in sort of within Bristol, in some of the private schools in, you know, where there is money. They, yeah. They, I mean, the problems there, do you, do you think, and, and this we, we touched on, I think, when we spoke about it, is sort of just like the expectations on some of the children now, or there's just so much pressure that it's, you know, they're just, they just don't know where to go with it. I think there is a huge amount of pressure. And I said, you can't switch off, can you? And, you know, in my day, there was no social media and there was significantly less societal pressure to conform or to do certain things. Um, I think there's pressure from schools because I still sort of when my daughters went through school, you know, their lead table positions, their, their um, qualifications, there was much more pressure on them to succeed from the school than I ever had, for example. So I think wherever you look, you, you're being pushed to look a certain way, to, to think a certain way. Um, social media isn't great for that kind of stuff. Um, there's a, a whole thing, that, you know, about how fabulous everybody's life is when we all know that's not really the case. Um, how girls have to look a certain way or, you know, be a certain weight and all those pressures, which I've seen with my own daughters, you know, I see how the outside world can influence their thinking. Television can do the same. So 
uh, it is difficult and I think they are being pressured in in lots of different areas by lots of different avenues mm. and dare I say it you know you're a parent I'm a parent you know I know lots of parents listen to this you know we all want to do the best for our children we really do but do you not think some of this pressure does come from us as well and from parents and just putting you know expecting too much again from us not just the schools but from the parents as well yeah I've got no doubt it does. And I think sometimes it comes from a good place, like you said, that you really want your young, your, your child to do well. And, and as a result, you push them. I think also we need to be more accepting of failure as a, as a nation. I think failure is nothing to, to be that afraid of. And everybody's afraid to fail and afraid for their loved ones to fail. But sometimes you just have to. I think that's one thing sport does teach you. Failure is not, is not fatal or, or sort of terminal. So actually... There is a balance between letting your children fail and supporting them when they fail and teaching them lessons about resilience and getting back up than there is sort of keeping pushing them forward to try and constantly succeed because in reality you're setting expectations that won't be matched mm, absolutely and it, and on that like again going back to what you're saying i mean at, at the gym you know there is such a warm family feel i mean your coaches are just just lovely they really are and it was interesting because i know you know you've met my husband and he's a journalist he does he's he does a lot of crime and going on the other you know the knife crime in Bristol or where it is everywhere and gangs but it was interesting talking because you've worked with these people who are part of these gangs and mm. you know that one of the biggest things which I never quite understood this the reason why they get caught up in this gang is because they just want to belong somewhere yeah I mean I think so Graham uh, the gangs they groom the most vulnerable I think, you know, we need to be absolutely clear that young people who are involved in gangs have often been picked up at a young age when they're looking for something. You know, they're looking to belong. They, they, they feel a little bit lost. Um, gang gives them a sense of family, gives them a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging. Um, and I think we all need that, really, actually. So from our point of view, one of the reasons we try and make sure the gym is one of those welcoming places is that it's a safe, safe place for you to hang out whenever you want to come in. And the minute you walk into reception, you'll be greeted by somebody who will treat you like you should be there. Um, everybody else will talk to you like you belong there. And I think it's important to create both that sense of independence that we can do through the boxing and with the training, but also that sense of belonging. Because if you're 13 and you're a little bit lost and maybe your home life's not great, and somebody who's whatever, 2018, is offering you a little bit of money or some new trainers to do something, you know, I can't blame them. Who knows where, what we, what decisions we would have made when we were in those positions and we were struggling. And I think if we can go back to being more empathetic and understand that if we could stop the supply to gangs by introducing services earlier and being more preventative, then we'll much likely have a better sort of outcome in the long run. Mm. Mm, absolutely well thank goodness you are doing the work I mean so so you left your job it was I think it was 2017 so that's when you yes. went so that's obviously when you came um when Jamie came back from Rio and that is that when you decided or was it later than that it, you'd set it up as a charity by this stage yeah so the charity was probably 2013 um Jamie came back at Christmas it took us a while to get the right trustees actually so you start off, you think, oh, we can give it to, I don't know, Jamie's mum, my mum, and you sort of work out that actually your trustees need to, to both challenge and help you mould and grow the business. And we got quite lucky. We had, um, at the time, we um, were working with AWP, so um, we were friendly with Marvin, so Marvin agreed to to go on the board. Charlotte Leslie, who was the MP for Bristol North, so she became on the board. We had Simon Newitt, who was a um, CEO of Off The Record, so he was able to provide that charitable governance that we didn't have a clue with at the time. And then David Fordham, who was a lawyer from the City of London. So we had this really strong board from the outset. Um, and the charity sort of 
it it started to grow. It was a, it was hard at first because I don't think people quite believed in what we were doing. There was an element of really with boxing, mental health. You know, there was a whole because we saw very early on that young people who came to us had mental health issues. We saw from from years ago, and we felt if we don't tackle that, we'll never actually be able to to make a lasting change. However, to convince somebody else that using boxing, which is traditionally pigeonholed, is this thing that's for the violent thugs in you know, is is taking those that are on the fringe of society to sort of convince them that we could use boxing as a way of engaging and improving people's mental well-being took some doing actually. And lots of funders just didn't seem to get it. So for the first couple of years, it felt that we were just we were going on and people were going, oh okay, yeah. But we never really got anywhere. Um we had support. We had support from George Ferguson when he was mayor. George actually um was the reason we got the the new building at the gym and the mill when the old um, Empire Gym was, was being shut down because the, the landlord needed to, to sell the building and wanted to sell the building and retire. You know, George was the one that got us the community asset transfer. So we've had political support from Bristol all the way through. Um, what we were struggling with is support from funders because I just don't think they really believed in it. Um, so it probably took us three years to get some traction. And then we got to a point where it was obvious that we needed somebody to run it in um, 2017, 20, yeah, in the 2016 it was actually the trustee sort of said, well, do you want to come over and run it? And then um, I gave up the day job in March 2017. So for 11 years, I've done it voluntarily. And then 2017 was the first time I got got paid to run it. Mm, that must have been tough, though, when you're, when you, you know, obviously you had a family of your own and then you're trying to get, you know, trying to get funds and people aren't believing it. You did very well, you and Jamie, to keep on believing it because you obviously really did believe in it because it could have been very easy for you to give up. Yeah, it, I mean, there were times when it was really hard. We had, um, it was a, it was a funny old thing, you know, I'd, I'd, um, I'd come home from work and I'd write a bid, but because I was doing it after I'd worked a full day, sometimes, you know, you might only do a question a night before you'd be thinking, oh, this is, makes no sense, I'll have to go back to it. So you could write a grant that would take you weeks. I would you know i'd walk to and from so i'd park the car in the in st paul's and i would walk to work so i'd use that time to make calls coming backwards for example so i'd be on the phone the whole time ringing trying to understand where we were um i'd get up on a saturday morning to write a bid when the kids or you know when the kids were older or when they were younger i'd wait until they went to bed and then i'd do some work so we were constantly juggling but we sort of believed in it. And then we had a little incident where two funders turned us down within a week of each other, two funders that I think we should have got. And that was the point in which both Jamie and I sat there exhausted and asked ourselves whether we were even doing the right thing. We kind of thought that we'd just be in busy fools here and nobody's actually believing it. Maybe, maybe we're not right. But the problem is because of the, you know, my desire, I suppose, to prove stuff, um, we collected stats and data and we'd done that for a long time. So we could see that we were making a difference. We could see whatever we did was benefiting young people. And I think if I'm honest, bar maybe a week when, and my wife who did everything. So when we started, we had no admin resource, obviously, because we couldn't pay anybody. And we just had my daughter and my wife went, look, I'll do it all for you. I'll do the invoice and I've got time, I'll do it all. And so, you know, she also worked for free for years and, and doing all this stuff. And I think we had the conversation, it was at my kitchen table. And we were sat there and we had a, we probably had a week where we really thought maybe we should stop. Maybe actually we're, we're kind of too wedded to what we're doing and we're not right. But we kept going back to the fact that we could see the stats and we had the stories. And in the end, we just thought, no, no, we're going to keep going because I believe we're right. And then um, out of the blue, a guy called Tim Temple, who used to work for the National Lottery, we put a bid in and he kind of rang and went, I don't do this very often. Um, can I come and see you? 
and he said look i really love what you're doing i think it works i understand it and these are the bits you probably need to draw out in order to put your second application in the second stage application and then we got the money and from there everything changed so tim in many ways sort of changed our lives because he came in he helped us when we needed it um he gave us advice and we just kicked on and then suddenly when the lottery are funded you everybody wants to fund you and funding went from being impossible to being a lot easier oh my goodness me and when was that martin i think the lottery was probably about 2015. right okay so then 2017 you left your job and you went yes. to work full-time i mean since then you've gone on you're a member of a parliamentary group you I mean you go up you go up to parliament and you i mean this is you're like doing a huge campaign yeah it was it's been odd i mean when i when I resigned, I said to my wife, this could be the, the stupidest thing I've ever done. This could be the biggest mistake of my life. But I had to, I felt I had to give it a go. Um, and we started, when I came over full time, we had five staff, I think I was the sixth. You know, we've now got 36 or 37 staff. Um, we are on an all party parliamentary group. We try and feed in Jamie and I are trying to, we're trying to lobby policymakers really. We're trying to get things to change. Um, and it may be a case of whistling in the wind a little bit, but we believe that we can, um, if not make policy change, at least we can nibble on the edges to get people to start to think about whether things could be different and, and how it should look. But um, we also work in 17 areas of South Wales now where we've got our own coaches and we're also supporting boxing clubs across the country. So we've gone from the five of us sat there thinking we might not have enough work to sustain us to um, sometimes we just sort of praying for a, a quiet two hours where we can sit down and have a cup of coffee. So it's been an odd, been a good ride, but an odd ride. Oh my goodness. But it, I mean, my goodness. I mean, you've even had um, Prince Harry and Meghan come and see you. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, well, I, I did honestly think we were being wound up. So I had a phone call from Peaches, Peaches Golden, who's um, the Lord Lieutenant, who's fabulous. And Peaches sort of said, can I come and see you? And I was like, of course. I said, when are you thinking? She went, well, maybe now. And I thought it was a bit odd. So Peaches came down and was sat in the, we got a porter cabin where a lot of the staff are sat. So she was sat in the porter cabin, it was raining. And she kind of went, there's a chance you might have a royal visit. And I'm thinking, oh, okay. Um, she said, can I bring some members down to the royal household to see the gym and can you show them around next week or whatever it was? And I was like, okay, no problem. Um, so we, we, we gave the tour. They wouldn't tell us who it was. They wouldn't tell us, I think we had a provisional date, but they wouldn't tell us who it was. And we, we gave them a tour and they sort of said, look, we'll let you know maybe in two weeks. And then I think a day or so later, they rang up and said, actually, you are going to get the royal visit, but we, we, we can't tell you who it is. So we were like, OK. And I said, well, when we know, I'll give you about a week's notice. So we thought, OK, no problem. And, you know, we were trying to then, so we were dealing with Peaches, who's, who is great. And she was sort of saying, right, this is the sort of thing you need to do. Can you get some kids to come along? Well, like, OK, but how'd you do that? So you're ringing up a school going, right. I've got somebody coming to the gym. I don't know who it is. And if I did know, I couldn't tell you. But would you like to bring half a dozen kids to meet them? And to be fair to the schools, they were going, okay, yeah. So we managed to, to get everybody lined up. And then we'd assumed, rightly or wrongly, that we were, um, we'd probably get a phone call to say, look, this is who it is. But they announced it on, on Twitter. So suddenly with a phone was going mad and people were ringing us and people were turning up to the gym. Um, and I don't think we were overly prepared for it. So we had a couple of chaotic days. <laughs> but yeah, it was Prince Harry. And, and I think at the time, him and Meghan, they, they were probably the two most famous people in the world. Mm. So we had a lot of attention in a very short space of time. Mm -hmm. And they loved it. 
they were honestly they were fabulous i didn't know what to expect um i just didn't know what to expect and we had a young man who who we had to nominate two young people to meet the royals and we we met uh we nominated one young man who us a while had, had, you know been in a good place turned his life around but anyway he'd lost his dad and the first thing you have to give a little bio to explain who the young people are and why they're meeting them and and um harry came in and just went i know what it's like i lost my mum and the young man got you know he started crying and he was really sort of the first time he'd ever really expressed grief i think in a way other than anger and they kicked everybody out of the room bar the sort of five of us and they sat with him for maybe 15 minutes and talked to him mm. and then the the etiquette is right you've got to go back in the gym you know that's that's your bit and he sort of said no no just stick with us and i reckon every i don't know five minutes or so he'd be um are you okay nobody would know but he's like yeah yeah i'm okay okay carry on and that was it. And there was a real human side in, and I think he he inspired the kid without any question whatsoever. But they also inspired everybody else. You know, we've got kids there that that maybe haven't been up to no good or or hadn't had the easiest time. In, and some of them were 15, 16, 17, you know, they were like, I don't care. Why do I care about a royal member? And, and when they walked in the room, their jewels dropped in, the, they were visibly, ex, you know, shocked. And you could see that that they had massive pride. So we were looking at it thinking, well, these are young people here that may never experience this again, but you could see how much it meant to them. And even that, that the night days after we were stopped in the community, people thanking us for bringing the Royal family to, to, to Easton. So the, the, the visit was from our point of view was brilliant. They, they were supposed to be, I think 40 minutes and they stayed an hour in something, you know, an hour and 30, they were sort of telling me that you've got to tell him to leave. And I'm like, listen, what am I going to say? He's a prince. If you want him to leave, you better tell him. Um, they went around with all the kids. They were really natural. They spent time talking. I thought they were phenomenal. So, and it hugely elevated our our reputation. You know, suddenly we've gone from being maybe an organisation known to funders to an organisation that's known everywhere. We were in Hello Magazine, Canada, and the States. And so it was it was surreal. It's just amazing. I am so conscious of time, but I, I have to just get you to tell this story as well. What you were just telling me before we started recording. So you had, was it last week, the October Club? Yes. So this was another one of these moments, but we just have to say this. So this is where you bid, is it to like hundreds of investment bankers or you are asking basically for funding? Yeah, the October Club is a committee of philanthropists really from the city. So there's, I think there's 18 members on the committee and they're sort of stockbrokers, investment bankers in, in, in that. Um, and they choose one charity a year. And if I'm honest, we put in the app and we thought, yeah, we've got no chance, but we fit the criteria, so we'll give it a go. And we got through to the final three. And even then, to be truthful, you know, you think, okay, I've got a 30% chance. But we were thinking, well, actually, we're probably not. Um, there could be slick London charities there. We had to, to pitch. It was half past six in Sloan Square. We had 15 minutes to pitch. We had 15 minutes for questions. So we thought, well, do you know what? We're the outsiders. Let's just go and be us. Let's not try and be anything else. So we didn't have any slides. We didn't have any PowerPoints. Um, we didn't have any videos. So I've turned up and they, they, one of the conversations was, uh, so you're the ones without any videos. And I'm okay. And you're the one without a PowerPoint. And I was thinking, oh, you've got this wrong. But we'll give it a go. So we we spoke, myself, Jamie, and a, and a young lady who'd been through our program and is now working for us. The three of us um, pitched. We answered the questions in, and we thought, well, okay, it's gone okay, fingers crossed. Um, the next morning, nine o'clock, um, Henry, who's the chair, rang me and said, you've got the funding. So we were, yeah, we were amazed. I genuinely thought we had no chance whatsoever. So to go all the way through was 
just to even pitch we thought was a feat mm. for them to get it was <clears throat> was terrific and then the main thrust of it is they had a dinner in October hence the name in the Savoy where they set up tables and basically all the the profits raised go to a single charity which was us amazing and you said so the young lady she stood up and spoke and you said afterwards and she told her own story and she had a difficult story and you said it was the first time ever that all 400 stood up and gave somebody a standing ovation that's yeah that's what the october club said she was absolutely fabulous i mean it's a big thing to do at any age let alone at 18 um and we were saying, are you sure you, even on the night, are you sure you want to do this? And she was like, no, I'm going to do it. I, you know, I want to tell this story. So we're like, okay, okay. Um, she was fabulous. Absolutely word perfect. Stood there. Everybody was mesmerized. She was honest. Um, she was emotional. She was articulate. Um, and then she sort of finished, walked off the stage and the whole room stood up and started cheering her and clapping her. And even now, I think what she's achieved, it probably hasn't sunk in. But in weeks or years or months time, she'll look back and think, I did that. You know, I did that at 18 years old and I stood up in front of all these people and I've done that. Um, and I'm absolutely convinced with the markets being in chaos, she's still one of the reasons why we raise so much money. Mm, yeah, it's such a, you know, at this time as well. So so now for you and Jamie, I mean, when you think back, when you think back to that night, that Friday night and you saw those two guys and you, you know, and all what you've been through when you've been with your wife, am I doing the right thing? Are we doing the right thing? She gave up so much of her time. All of you did. All these thousands and thousands of of young people you've helped when you see like have a moment like that now could you have ever believed on that night in fright on that friday night that you'd be where you are today yeah no we had a moment we've had a couple of moments me and jamie we sort of looked at each other i thought how the hell have we got here you know we're just <laughs> two idiots from who ran a boxing club how have we ever how have we ever got in this position um you know you're in the savoy they've raised in excess of eight hundred thousand pounds possibly as much as nine hundred thousand pounds um we no, I couldn't have imagined it at all. I mean, I didn't imagine working for a charity. I could never have imagined being in this position. Um, and I'm sort of, I look at the team and I'm proud of, of who we've got. You know, they're, they're people that care. So we've, we've come from a, a place where we were desperate to, to raise £10,000 to a place where we work in now across the UK. Um, we've had a, quite a bit of international interest. I've done, I've been in a small working group with, um, people from well uh, about tackling youth violence, global youth violence, with somebody, for example, who worked for Obama, somebody who worked in Medellin in Colombia, and we're having conversations about constructing a, a global answer to to how youth violence should be tackled. So you have to pinch yourself. And yet, you know, we had a moment when we were waiting in the line to greet the roars, and we just looked at each other and thought, "Well, how's this happened?" You know, <laughs> how, how, so that we have we've had those moments in. I think at least we can look back on them and, and enjoy them. But it's beyond that. Uh, yeah, it, I, I could have imagined it in the beginning. I have to ask you this, Martin. Have you ever got to Rio? Did you ever go? No, oh. sums it up. No, no. Martin, I might have, have to go. To... <laughs> well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, I, I'm lucky if I get a week in Stoke or something. So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah definitely, definitely not Rio. But we've um, we've had some trips. We've been invited out. We've met different people who who have been really interested in what we do. And we've had some really interesting conversations with global mayors. So there appears, you know, we've got half a chance maybe of taking this 
beyond the UK by the looks of it. People are really interested in what we're doing. So you never know, I might you get there know. at some point. Otherwise, you just have to go to some kind of Brazilian bar in Bristol or something like that and just taste <laughs> your success. But yeah, so to move on to be continued. So, so yeah, so you've got so you've got 5,000 young people that you help is every year now with your with your programs. So you've got so you like you say, you've gone all over the UK, you in Wales. Yeah. Uh, so for you to be continued, what would you like to see happen next? I think, so there's a few bits for me. I mean, you, you get to a point where you have to question, we, we must only exist if we make a difference. That's the most important thing to me. Um, I often joke, I've sort of half my money and trebled my stress by running a charity. So we have to make a difference. And I think you get to a point when you think, how can you maximise your impact? How can you make sure that you keep doing the best you can? Our belief is that we don't, I don't believe that we need to significantly increase the headcount because I think actually we start to become an institution, we lose our agility, we lose our innovation, we lose all the things that's good, that are good about us. Um, so the current idea is that we're going to work with boxing clubs to start with across the country and we're going to train those boxing clubs who will be trusted and there'll be clubs that want to, I mean it's not just a boxing club who wants to produce champions, it's got to be a boxing club like us that wants to serve some kind of social purpose. And we've got a two-day training course plus a 12-month support package. So we're starting to work with those boxing clubs in different communities. And we're going to help them deliver the programs that we've built over these years to affect the lives of the young people in their communities. They might not be identical and there'll be different reasons why they're coming, obviously. But the psychological stuff, the, um, the, 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 the program itself, which has been very well defined, you know, they have access to the psychologists. So we're hoping that those boxing clubs will become sustainable and we'll be able to to work with you know tens of thousands of uh, of young people across the next few years. So I'm hoping that five thousand might become fifteen, twenty thousand young people that are affected by the program across the UK. Not all delivered by us, just some supported by us. And then I don't know you because we do have significant interest from from different countries, um, and the program in theory will work anywhere. So I guess Jamie and I, in the back of our minds could see that there there is an opportunity here for this to to go well beyond the uk mm. so in the, the to, to be continued bit i guess where would we be well we'd have boxing clubs that were delivering the program that are making a substantial difference boxing clubs who are altering and affecting and, and supporting tens of thousands of young people in three years time we'd hopefully be working in one or two communities worldwide that also would be able to to deliver these programs and then you know, when the time comes for, for me to step down or, or whatever it be, at least I can look back and think, well, we've done our best. You know, we've, we've left something that's going to keep going. Um, and we've left something that hopefully has helped people as we've done it. So I, that that's the kind of aim at the end. Mm. Do you think, I mean, I know you were saying earlier with the boxing, it's like the one-on-one -on -one and the contact and that, but do you think it could be a, adapted to other sports? I Yeah, I think it probably could. We're, we're doing some work with a... A national organization now that has um, a number of sports clubs that become members basically so it's a large charity that has thousands of sports clubs and we've created a, a it's, it's a halfway house but we've created a therapeutic um, training program for sports coaches so we're going to work with them to deliver it to coaches across the country so we're going to start moving towards um, making more sports coaches therapeutically aware because often the sports coaches the one person they do trust and if they have a conversation, especially around stuff like suicide, it's it's very difficult for somebody who's not got any experience at all to, to be able to handle those conversations. And we're not, I'm not suggesting we're going to make all those coaches therapists, 
but I do believe that we can make them more therapeutically aware, more aware of what they can do, more aware of how they can support. So we'll see how that goes and we'll see if there's any sports there that, that naturally lend themselves to what we do. And then if there is, whether we are in a position to help support them, because ultimately we only exist, as I've said, to make a difference. Um, and it doesn't have to be us delivering and it doesn't have to be our kind of empire, if you like, you know, it's much more about, do we make a difference? Mm. Can we affect the lives of young people? Does it work? If it works, how can we ensure that as many young people as need it have access to it? Mm-hmm. And also just thinking, in just in case someone's sort of listening to this and thinking, do you know what, I'd love to be able to start something like that up. But, you know, you going back to what we were saying you know where you are you know it is a tough part of Bristol and you and you know you've got people in there and we spoke about this when we came in you know you've got boxers and if you know you know I I have boys I know I'm not saying girls are different but just I know boys more they are physical and you know if it's a bit tough or violent and but people might be listening to this and thinking how and I don't know how I could handle it could I actually handle it I mean you could handle it and you and Jamie you sort of roots you're in the area but if somebody wanted to set up something somewhere else but how do they deal with really difficult young people do you think you need to have your kind of background or do you think you can do it really from any but background as long as you have the understanding um i think it's the latter i don't think it's about being tough i think our success is built on um in some ways resilience and a desire to do the right thing you know we we've never had to restrain a young person in 16 years we've never had to put our hands on a young person in 16 years um i think sometimes you just have to be resilient young people that we deal with they just want somewhere to belong they might test you and part of that test is because they've been rejected on multiple occasions. So actually, they're just going to see if you're going to still turn up. And part of their behaviour is about almost seeing if you'll disappear, pushing you away to see if you'll come back. Um, I would honestly say that the biggest single um, tenant to our success, I believe, is relationships. I believe we're consistent and we maintain good relationships. The coaches are fabulous people. They go out of their way. The young person knows when they walk into our building, that any coach they speak to will do their best for them. Mm. It might not always work, but there is absolutely no doubt they'll do their best. So if you wanted to do anything anywhere else, I think that you have to be authentic, you have to be credible, you have to care, and you have to be resilient because Mm. it just isn't easy at times. No, and this is also the word that you use to teach others because we all come across it and all all our children come across it with a bit of bullying everywhere in life. You're always going to come across it. But this is what you're really teaching them as well, isn't it? It's not necessarily going out and teaching them how to bop someone on the nose. You're not teaching them that. You're teaching them the resilience to be able to walk away and to also not feel shamed, not feel isolated, all those things that these bullies make you feel. Yeah, I mean, the last thing we're really teaching them is violence, you know, or or how to fight. This is all about um, resilience. It's all about accepting who you are. It's about accepting situations. You know, we have a a point that we deliver in the programme and we talk about the fact that you cannot control what happens around you. What you can control, for example, is your reaction to what happens around you. So we start having those conversations about, okay, that might be rubbish. And there is going to be hard, let's be honest, and there are going to be times in your life when you people make you really unhappy or the situations are not great. And you can't really control that. What you can control is how you react to that, how you behave, how you respond. And it's that type of stuff and the resilience and the even just liking yourself more, the self-confidence, the self-esteem, making people believe that they can achieve. Because part of it is, you know, sometimes 
not all the time. We get people who were told a lot, you know, that they're never going to get a job, they're no good, or they're no this, or you might believe it in yourself, regardless of your background, you might believe that you're not worth very much. And again, part of our thing is to make them aspire to something, make them believe, make them believe in themselves, make them believe they've got a future because they have. So that's a big chunk of what we do. You know, it's much more about this kind of um, psychological support and the, the therapy than it is about boxing. Mm-hmm. Boxing is a hook, you know, nobody's being taught to fight, honestly. <laughs> no, I know they're not. I mean, it's just incredible. So your acknowledgements, who would you like to thank who have, who are the people who have helped you along the way? Uh, there's, there are loads, if I'm honest, there are loads. I mean, I've, I've almost been surprised at how many good people there are in the world. It's how many people are willing to help us. I mean, George Ferguson helped us when he became mayor at a point where he probably wasn't remotely familiar with boxing or even the areas that we were dealing with. Marvin's helped us along the way. Um, people like Tim Temple have helped me um, when nobody really believed. Then obviously we've got Jamie and my wife who, who did lots of stuff and stuck there and said we're going to do it um, regardless. And even now I've got a guy that helps me with strategy and sometimes unsustainable, Michael Fuller. You know, and, and I think we'd be lost without all these individuals and we, we probably wouldn't have achieved anywhere near what we've achieved without the support we've got from from individuals along the way. The early days, it was really tough um, and people were really kind to us and really went out their way to support us in what we were trying to do. And, you know, that's what we try and do now. If somebody comes to us, we try and help them mm. um, because we were there once. Mm. And also, we as somebody who lives in Bristol, and I know, you know, my husband and our friends would feel the same because I, he knows as well that he does lots of work with the police, and we know how much work you do, you do with the police, um, and help, you know, some of these young people that it, you know, it could end in a different way, and our streets could be a lot more dangerous. And you do this amazing work, and you're helping our streets be safer. So thank you to that. Uh, thank you for that because you know we we all love our Bristol. So thank you for for making it a little bit better. Uh, honestly, we love what we do. Yeah. <laughs> we, we genuinely love what we do. Even if I've had a bad day, we love what we do. Um, and I, I, like I said before, Bristol's been good to us. There's There's been a lot of support from the city in all areas of the city, whether they're political, whether it's community, whether it's been fundraising. So, you know, we're proud to to have done something from, from St Paul's and we're, we're proud of where we come from and we're hoping that we might be able to, to keep going for the next... 16 years. I definitely think you need a little head office in Rio. This could save everything, Martin. This could (laughs) sort it all out. So very finally, your tips and advice. So we talked there about if somebody's listening to this thinking of starting something similar, but just moving away. I mean, you've seen all sides of life. You really have. Somebody's listening to this and they haven't got the purpose. Like you're saying, you love what you do. As hard as you find it at times, it must be exhausting and, you know, it must be. But you you have, you and Jamie, you've, you've got an absolute purpose. Now, if someone's listened to this and like yeah you know I go to work and it's okay but this is not the purpose a bit more how you felt when you were in your finance it wasn't mm-hmm. they hadn't you know you know the difference between how you felt when you're working in your finance and how you feel now what would you say to that person who doesn't really know quite what their purpose is but knows they want something more than what they're doing at the moment um I guess in some ways is to find first of all what what you are interested in because that's hugely important if you're going to make a big change then you need to make sure that you you know for me i was making a change in something i cared about so that so that was hugely important to me um there is an element really of and that's a bit of a cliche but you know we haven't done how long we've got do we 
So I think part of me was like, do I want to spend the rest of my life doing a job that I, I find okay and the people I like, but actually I don't think I'm making a difference. And don't be afraid to fail. Just never be afraid to fail. You know, I would have rather failed being brave than stuck in the job and, and let the, the, the charity limp on um, because I don't think there's any shame in it. Mm-hmm. You give it a go, you fall short. Well, there you are. You'll have to get back up and go again or you do something else. But 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 never, ever be afraid to fail because I think that's what holds lots of people back is the fear of the unknown, the fear of, of getting it wrong. And, and I would say just don't worry about it. And when you, I mean, when you made the decision to go full time in the charity, you were in a, working in a more secure job in in finance. You had a family, and that's what holds a lot of people back, isn't it? As well, that, that hang on, I've got the responsibility, I've got mortgage to pay, I can't just go and do this. So somebody who's in that, and especially if somebody's the main breadwinner, if somebody's in that situation, like your situation, what would your advice be to them? You know, is there a certain stage you think you should get to before you make that jump? You know, and how do you sort of prepare yourself for the worst if, if needs be? Yeah, I, for me anyway. So I'll talk from my experience. I was quite hard headed about it. I knew that the charity had to be in a set position before it made financial sense. You know, I had two daughters I, who I love dearly and I wasn't prepared to risk anything from them um, just on some kind of oh, I think I should do it now, you know, or on a whim. So I wanted the charity be it, to be at a point. It wasn't like numbers wise or whatever, but I needed to be in a, in a, what I kept a very robust position. So I made a decision looking at it, thinking, do you know what? I think we've got to this point. Um, I reckon that we it's worth taking the, the, the next step. Um, I won't pretend that I, I didn't sit there and go, well, this is great. And it's been sunshine and flowers ever since, because that, that definitely hasn't been the case. Um, there have been moments when it's been really tough. There were moments when I made the decision that I questioned at a three month notice period. So I remember working through that and there were times when I was thinking, what am I doing? You know, I can come in here, I can, I can cop a wage, I can go home again and I've got a nice little life. Um, so I suppose what I would say is definitely use your head. Don't just go hard all in because that does lead to problems. Be, be, be analytical, be business minded about the decisions you make and be brave because, you can always get another job. You, you can always even probably go back. Potentially at the moment, you could go back to the company you're in. That was part of my thinking. I thought, well, there's always going to be a need for an analyst. So what what am I afraid of? Let's let's give it a go. Um, and again, I keep, you know, just be resilient, be prepared to fail and be brave because if you're not, then th- there's a thing in you're almost afraid to win a game or you're afraid to win a boxing match. So actually you, you can sort of almost be defensive and get yourself through three rounds and not take the risks you need to in order to win a contest. And I guess in some ways that's how I felt about this. I thought, well, what's the worst that can happen? I get it wrong. I fail. I get another job. I'd rather have done that than than, than not giving it a go and been sat there at 80, please God, I make it and, and look back and go, well, okay, what did I do? You were safe. You, you took the safe option and you never really tested yourself. Martin Biss, you are everything you teach. Thank you so much for spending the time. Thank you for everything you're doing. And it's just been a delight to speak with you. Well, thanks for your time. I really enjoyed it, actually. So there you are. I don't like to say I told you so, but well, I did, didn't I? It's amazing, their story. And Martin is so humble and hardworking. I so appreciate the time he took to talk to us. Now, you can find out more at empirefightingchance.org. And I really recommend you have a close look wherever you live. All the stories are just so inspiring. 
Now, you can keep up to date with me at elliebarkerwrites.com. I'd love, love to hear from you. If you could rate and review this episode, well, then that would be marvellous and may even help someone with their next chapter. In the meantime, well, go on, be brave. I think you can do it. And Martin does too. Speak soon.